Welcome to the Neanderthal Mind, bringing you riveting, educational, humorous, and sometimes serious perspectives on how our Neanderthal ancestors' will to survive still has a profound effect on our modern mind, body, and soul. Take a journey with us as we roll back the clock thousands of years to discuss all aspects of our Neanderthal ancestors. All right, my fellow cave dwellers, if you're ready, let's get this wheel rolling. Now here's your host and the leader of the pack, Anthony Yokolano. Hello, cave dwellers. In today's episode, we're going to talk about Neanderthal and Homo sapien psychology, specifically the cognitive function of Neanderthals, interactions between Neanderthal and Homo sapiens, and how an increase in caring capacity set the Homo sapiens on the path of domination. These fascinating topics lead us to discuss possible causes of the Neanderthal's extinction, how autism and bipolar designations may have been beneficial to our Neanderthal ancestors, and how seeing the good in everyone, regardless of race, sexual orientation, or religious beliefs proved to be vital in Homo sapien evolution. To cover these topics, we're going to talk to Dr. Paul Sambataro. Dr. Sambataro has a PhD in neurobehavioral psychology. He completed clinical and organizational psychology studies with a background in wildlife biology. Dr. Sambataro is a retired school psychologist author of multiple self-help books and texts associated with neurobehavioral psychology, and most recently, the CEO of Fufu Media Empire. In 2018, Dr. Sambataro released Emotional Budgeting Workbook, an educational book which teaches emotional budgeting. His book describes how emotional transactions occur in a similar fashion to financial transactions and how what you take in and what you put out emotionally affect your mental well-being. So cave dwellers, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. I will see you on the flip side. Good morning, Dr. Sambatara. How are you, sir? Good, thank you. And how are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, thank you for... Uh, wanting to come on the uh, Neanderthal mind. I, I greatly appreciate that. Oh, no problem. I'm, I'm happy to do it. It goes along with some of the things that uh, I'm involved in. I have uh, two publications I'm working on, uh, things that, um, you know, it's important to me, obviously, that to understand the past, you know, is, uh, is important to understand the present behaviors. There's no, it's a direct connection and uh, it's important. To, and I appreciate Actually, although it sounds kind of off the wall, it really, I think, hits a lot of points uh, to bring up something like the Neanderthal mind because it's so important for us to reach back and understand why we do the things we do. So kudos to you. Um, and, and actually, I really appreciate you bringing that uh, kind of forensic to the forefront. Well, thank you. And, I, and I'm doing my best to, again, I have... Uh... I have no experience in psychology or Neanderthals for that matter, but uh, I was getting into mindfulness for a while there, which I need to get back into. And uh, one podcast I was listening to was talking about how, you know, the reason we think like we do and act like we do is because of our Neanderthal ancestors. So I kind of put, you know, two and two together and thought, man, I, I have an interest in wondering what we do, why we do it. So let me see if I can get any further information on it. So for me, it's, uh, with which, you know, as well as along with my community, it's it's more of an educational journey for me to, to to learn all the reasons as to why, you know, so I'm excited about it. Give us a little uh, a dissertation about yourself. Okay, sure. Um, it's, it's a little convoluted, but I have my background as a PhD in neurobehavioral, but I did, uh, I did all the educational PhD educational uh, for clinical psychology and organizational psychology, plus 
uh, background in clinic, actual clinic and uh, school psychologist retired. So um, most of all of this is that I'm, you know, not directly involved anymore, but we do, we have uh, our uh, um, or institution, it we call it is Houston Behavioral Health Institute here in Houston. And that was part of uh, American Academy of Primary Care Psychologists in Washington State, where we had our clinic and where I worked as a retired, or excuse me, as a school psychologist. So um, all of these things uh, lead up to what I would say is important, uh, the experience and the education to kind of get a full holistic view of our behaviors and resulted in our publications, which uh, is the emotional budget workbook. And also, as I mentioned, the up and coming uh, books that support um, those scientific background uh, called the Bipolar War and Autism Revolution. And obviously that's where uh, the intro into Neanderthal mind, because a lot of that is thought to be connected to the genetic uh, background. But I also might wanna mention that as a caveat and as a caution, that even though we see strains or genetic uh, percentages from research into uh, people around the globe, there, it's important to understand that there are groups that don't have that genetic uh, are, are not identified at this point. So that doesn't mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that we can take and make assumptions on, but really uh, in my point, in my experience and goals, mission for uh, what we're trying to do is to understand what uh, the connections are from our past to better understand what, how our behaviors are now. And that's really important uh, when we try to look at all of us together, um, you know, and not separate out uh, each group by race or perhaps by ethnicity necessarily, but also to, um, you know, identify, you know, how the value of each one of us. And I see the value connection between Neanderthals and, and people who carry, perhaps carry that or don't, but that each individual is, you know, has a value. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. You could, well, in speaking on that, I seen there was one thing. Oh, actually, whenever you had uh, filled out the invitation, uh, you had mentioned something about wanting to talk about the interactions between uh, Neanderthal and Homo sapiens. I didn't know. Yeah, that and, was, I, uh, and that's something that is really, I feel really important that uh, actually is today because the connection, one of the, to begin with, it, we always need to. I feel like we need to lay a foundation of thinking and that is evolution. So, you know, we have to kind of, it reinforces that yes, evolution is here. It does work and it is uh, continuous. So it's not, it's never stopping. And that it, important in, in the sense that even now there is evolution in our body and our, in our brains. And although we don't recognize it, if we go back to the Neanderthal, then that interaction with other groups might uh, help us see better what is going on today. So you have a group that evolved into a species or uh, not necessarily a separate species, but a different uh, genetic type called the Neanderthal. And then you have the Homo sapiens. And of course there were other groups spread out, but they were usually earlier. So it's really relies on what we consider the, the second, the, you know, the group that was there right before the Homo sapiens migrated into uh, lower uh, Southern Europe. So in that, we might speculate, we've seen that there's a percentage in groups and we might uh, look back and we say, oh, you know, were they, uh, was it a warfaring? Did they clash? Uh, you know, the first thoughts were that Neanderthals were eliminated or, but in, in hindsight or in forensics, looking through to find out what logically might happen, we could see that there might be a couple things going. So a lot of, some of the research indicates, well, there's 
uh, strains of bipolar or autism or ADD and all this, but I, I, I think it's uh, more logical or, or for us to look at it from a perspective of adaptation and what, what would have provided the advantage for Homo sapiens to begin with? What would have been the cause? And we look at two things. One is the environment. What was the change going on in the environment? And that's kind of something we can draw back on today. So we look at the environment today. We look at the environment then. We look at the interaction then. We look at the interaction now. There's a couple of things. We can make assumptions about Neanderthals hunting and uh, foraging or, or and group size, which is extremely important when you're uh, looking at evolution per se, or why there might be an advantage to one group over another. So obviously Neanderthals had an advantage or they would never have been a, a specific group uh, at the time, perhaps at the ice age for 400,000 years, maybe they could withstand you know, cold better. And soon the Homo sapiens coming in. Uh, so there, obviously there's indications that there was mixing. So what would be the advantage and disadvantage? So it looks as if the disadvantage for the Neanderthals is uh, you know, the change in weather, maybe the change uh, in, in climate that uh, one could speculate that it was reduced um, animal or hunting. But on the other hand, what did Homo sapiens bring? And if we look around us, our, one of the greatest things that looks to be is their ability to socialize. So perhaps the Homo sapiens were better at creating a larger organization uh, a greater settlement. So already that means that they can, they're increasing their, and the word here with evolution is carrying capacity. So as you are able to increase carrying capacity, you start to provide for overwhelming numbers, uh, just in the ability to allow for greater concentration of individuals within a group. And that usually is predominantly a positive or um, not necessarily positive all around, but it's an advantage. And this is likely, in my opinion, what really was going on. Neanderthals were grouped, they were small, they were scattered, uh, and that helped them survive uh, in the harsher conditions. And as soon as the thawing of the ice and the migrating migration of the Homo sapiens, you have an increased number ability to organize and concentration of, of homo sapiens together, giving them an advantage. But at the same time, that meant that they likely had to increase their uh, foraging, um, hunting, which undoubtedly through some of the research indicates that the extinction of some of those larger ice age animals uh, accelerated. So you had climate change, and then you had the movement of homo sapiens who were probably likely better organized and at the same time managed to increase their carrying capacity by being better organizational hunters. But that meant probably a faster rate of extinction for the food around them. And this is the conundrum that we can draw today. We see today we have increased our carrying capacity, but we see the destruction of our environment as a process of that. So we increase, we're able to organize, and we see yet how you know uh, things are balanced, but in the end, maybe they're also destroyed. So this is the kind of thing that I think is very interesting in drawing a forensic look or a backwards look at what happened during that time that both the Neanderthal and Homo sapiens met. And now where we see, and for the last, thousand years or 4,000 years, the movement of people who are mostly homo sapiens, but now it's organizational, institution organization that increases capacity, uh, carrying capacity who take the advantage. So you could see uh, as, for example, you know, uh, European advancement into the Americas, uh, you see um, greater carrying capacity, but you see a greater need for resources. You also see, um, more organization, and you see this kind of absorption. So homo sapiens, maybe the better word would be absorption of Neanderthals.
with that increased ability to organize and have a greater concentration of numbers. And that looks to be supported by the, the elimination and decrease in extinction of animals around it. The, the interesting note I thought was really interesting is Stonehenge area. They, they had recently dug up uh, uh, a whole cadre, a whole area in which there were bones from uh, earlier hunting, which showed the greater, the larger size animals, a huge amount of bones. So it looks as if before Stonehenge, there were, it was a place of a lot of large animals and a concentration of hunting. And we can see how that went, that, that there's no longer obviously animals there of that size or that uh, nature. And we saw an increase in people. So our homo sapiens. And this is the kind of thing we can see that pretty much might be repeating itself through and through uh, history. Awesome. I, I think that's probably one of the best uh, possible theories that I've ever heard. And I appreciate that. And I, I kind of, uh, I, I side with you on that. As I further get into this uh, realm of Neanderthals and, and uh, evolution, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, theories come out where Homo sapiens, you know, just uh, mass genocide or, you know, just killed off the Neanderthals. And I just, I don't see that did that happen? I'm sure there were, you know, some clashes between them, but I would think it was more like you said, you know, uh, just integration between the two, uh, you know, between the two, you know, and, and uh, the Homo sapiens were the stronger gene, I guess you could say. So it just kind of bred out the Neanderthal gene, which, uh, again, according to some research, you know, we still have two or three percent of, you know, Neanderthal genes in us. So that was a fantastic explanation. I appreciate that. Yeah, and, and you know my 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 idea or personal opinion, and, and and again, it's important to realize that there are large groups who have no Neanderthal genes in them, or reported Neanderthal genes south south of Europe, or you know towards Africa and and so on. So it doesn't mean that you know that's the end all of our as people. And again, I see it as more you know there were probably pockets of you know, people are the clashes as you might indicate, but I, I see it more as, again, increased numbers. You, you have a large ability to, uh, for increasing the carrying capacity, which means you have a large settlement of homo sapiens versus a family group in a cave or, you know, uh, and that's just not gonna, that's not gonna end well, <laughs> no matter how you look at it, because even when you're trying to hunt, if you have several hundred members of some group who's hunting and have maybe run a bunch of woolly mammoths over the cliffs, you know, in the hundreds, there's nothing much left for the Neanderthal there. You know, they're, they're, they're gonna have to scrape by and, and after 400,000 years of perhaps, I wouldn't say easy hunting, but easily identical hunting with large mammals. And now, you know, it's being scattered and, and uh, and cut off from them. Uh, we've seen this uh, a few you know, times. We can see it in uh, the Amazon today. There are groups of people there, indigenous people who are in small numbers. And then you see the increasing encroachment of larger groups of people who you know, not necessarily need to hunt, but are farmers and they are winning the day. So you know, it doesn't mean that they are killed right away, but it does show that the absorption and, and elimination is both an ongoing, you know, uh, existential and a real threat to uh, small communities. That, that's, uh, so that, that's kind of a, a great segue into one of the other uh, topics I wanted to bring up. You had written uh, environmental pressure on brain evolution, behaviors, social interactions, and subsequent adaptations. So that kind of that leads us right into that segment. If there was anything you wanted to. Uh, oh, absolutely. Now. And thank you for bringing that up. Uh, as, as I mentioned, I am, I, why it's important to me is I have two books that are trying to support, uh, in the process of supporting the emotional budgeting workbook that is about providing uh, support, cognitive function support. So 
the operative word for me, and that's my, my uh, education is cognitive function. So one of the things that Neanderthals have shown or the research has indicated, but not specifically identified. And again, there's some, I see, you know, sort of discussion between uh, genetic uh, genotypes that are presented in bipolar, ADD, or autism. But in my, uh, what I would say, research or, or uh, data, looking through the data and looking through today's how social and um, behaviors are changing today or have changed and are shown to be, but we don't delineate the difference in our own groups is that bipolar is, is, an, is a bad word, in my opinion, because it always connotes mental health issues. And the same with autism, because the extreme end of that does impact the ability for an individual to uh, function within our society. And it's so great to have this uh, conversation in regards to that, because for a lack of a better identifying uh, evolution in the brain. So instead of looking at it as a mental health issue, we see it as at some point, the genetic development of the brain that was more indicative, say a bipolar component uh, for lack of a better word, and it's not as a mental health, but as a brain development, it most likely benefited whatever group. And, and today it benefits whatever group is in a certain environment. So uh, likely from my research, a harsh environment is going to benefit those that can operate uh, in that harsh environment and of course have offspring that survive. So if you have 15, 20% bipolar, it means it's more likely that those group at some point benefited from their genome type to survive in that environment, which is most likely to have been harsh, limited resources or uh, carrying capacity issues. In other words, a group got too big or uh, some port and that, and that may uh, also be a part of the um, migration. And those are all things to be looked at in research, but that is a set of, in, in my research is a set of brain development. So then we look at autism and they say, okay, this is a genome from, that's noticed in autistic individuals. But you could also see it as a spectrum in which it's part of brain development and a divergence. So you have a divergence, you also can include both. You can have bipolar type development and you can have autism, but in that separation, you're gonna have a spectrum and you're gonna have that separation and you're gonna have individuals on the population curve at the end that are gonna have difficulty function in the current environment. So this is a lot to take in, uh, in any, any situation to describe this ongoing process, the individuals who have difficulty functioning in their current environment, even though their genome was developed under harsh conditions. So Neanderthal, we'll take that as an example. We can assume if it's an ice age, we think of harsh conditions, uh, not necessarily lack of food maybe, but environmental harshness. And under the uh, conditions, it benefited small groups and carrying capacity was not uh, an advantage. Then came the thawing of the ice age, the retreat of the glaciers. The Homo sapiens, probably not by coincidence, moved as the climate incrementally uh, improved. And then you had uh, one group of genotype meet another and the advantages and disadvantages changed as they interacted. And today we call out bipolar and autistic uh, as a mental health issue. But if you look at it as a spectrum and as a brain development, then you can see where the interactions are beneficial in some regards and the autistic traits are beneficial in certain circumstances. But at some points there are clashes. And this is where 
one takes the foundation of the brain development and the evolution and you can make predictions. You can say, oh, this behavior is going to result in this and around this uh, environment. And that's exactly what happens. You can make predictions and they're uh, easily, they're repeatable over and over and over again because you have a set, you have a set brain development, you have a spectrum. And then if you, with the understanding of those traits, one understands the cognitive function, then one understands the behavior that results from it. So from the workbooks that I, I do, the, the issue is not trying to change the cognitive function through behavior, but rather by working with cognitive function and that's brain development, you actually get the behavior you want because it's predictable. If you understanding the differences between how an autistic, someone on the autistic spectrum functions versus someone who has the brain development more attuned to the bipolar brain development, those are all predictable behaviors. And at that point, you can make, uh, whether it's treatment or interventions or uh, in working with the brain, you can actually identify what behaviors you want, how you, how you get those behaviors. And so instead of having a 30% eff efficacy rate in helping people with mental health issues, you get 100%. So just for an example, we have uh, the ongoing national rate for um, people uh, getting out of prison and uh, being better and then or not going back in. The recidivism rate is 77%. That means 77% of that population it's gonna repeat itself and end up back in the institution of uh, incarceration or some other, 77%. That means the efficacy of trying to change thinking through the discipline of behavior is actually only 23%. So if you think about that, that's so important to understand the Neanderthal mind and the times cognitive function and the resultant behavior. It all ties together, but it's a thread that is complicated and it's through time. So time is our third dimension, which normally we don't uh, review when we're thinking about brain development or mental health issues. But by doing this, we are able to take a look back, walk through time and see how our behaviors and our adaptations impact our behaviors and cognitive function is so vital for our behaviors rather than trying to force behaviors to change our mind. Awesome, I love that as well, my goodness. So like, and I love that explanation because 99% of the time you hear just the negativities of bipolar and autism where, you know, they do have, like you said, you know, some, uh, some benefits with society on, you know, um, right, if you are able to, uh, not to offend anybody, but able to control those, uh, you know, those mental uh, abilities uh, for bipolar and autism, you know, they definitely have a benefit. Absolutely. And again, think of it as a spectrum. We talk about autism, autistic, autism spectrum is really ASD uh, disorder, Autis, autism spectrum disorder. And bipolar, we don't say that, but it should be. It should be bipolar spectrum disorder. <laughs> so you, everyone who may have those genotypes exhibit some symptom, maybe not all of them, and they're still functional. Or in certain environments, they are more functional. Think of it as culture. You take someone from another culture, and there are nonverbal cues that they respond to as a structure. You take them out, you put them in America, there's no more cultural structure for them that they responded to. Now their uh, genome, genome uh, the expression, the gene expression, which may be more in, in line with bipolar genotype. And in that expression, there no longer has that structure which kept it down. So now the expression might be higher blood pressure, uh, escalating, escalation, and then you get, uh, you know, where in other countries, there are 
structure to keep from honor killings, but maybe it wouldn't be here. So you have this kind of, uh, in some cases, a lot of things of explosive uh, dynamics from the lack of culture brought over to a new area. And now the structure has disappeared and the individual doesn't recognize that this was part of their nonverbal cues. And this is the environment that they had kept in check the way that their genome type expressed itself. And it's pretty obvious, you know, to those who are see it, but it's not obvious if you're within a system itself and you can, you're not looking beyond that. And that's kind of where, as the ant is in the colony, they're at that level, they're recognizing each other. But when we look at the ant colony, we just see ants in a line, we see the queen and so on. So it's different perspectives from 30,000 feet, 50,000 feet and from the moon. And these are the ways that, you know, makes it difficult to share uh, ideas between groups. Fantastic. Just just as a note here, we're, we're at the half half hour point, but I, I am perfectly fine with going on if, as long as you have nothing uh, that you need to get to. <laughs> I'm perfectly fine with going uh, further into the conversation, but that's up to you. Yeah, um, if you have, I can't remember all the salient points uh, I mentioned, but was there anything else in particular that you were interested in having um, noted or identified uh, in regards to uh, the Neanderthal mind. Oh, I, I did have one more point. I, I have a little pet peeve, if you don't sure. mind. No, absolutely. Um, no, go ahead. Yeah. I, you know, over the years, uh, to me, in the English language, it's always been Neanderthal, T-H, fall, as in. And, uh, but I've often heard, and it's driven me to distraction, where the T is a hard T, Neanderthal. Oh, and yes. it's driven me to distraction <laughs> <laughs> because I was brought up under the English, more English type uh, learning or, or pronunciation. So I, I hope you don't mind, but I'm a Neanderthal sort of pronunciation person. No, absolutely not. And I, again, through, you know, just with the, uh, the the ones that I've interviewed, it's, it's, it's one or the other. It really is, uh, you know, just like most uh, words in the English vocabulary, we always like to change the pronunciations or the spellings to our own. So uh, yeah, either way is, you know, either fall or tall, uh, you know, that, that I've heard or that, you know, everyone's ever told me is that, you know, it's it's all in how you want to pronounce it, pajama, pajama, I guess you could say. <laughs> I, I personally, I prefer Neanderthal. I, it yes. just, it rings, it rings with the pronunciation of the T-H and <laughs> yes. A-L and I, I can't figure out where the distinction uh, how the T came to be a hard T in in that in that moment. But anyway, it's a pet peeve. I just thought I wanted to throw that in there real quick. You gave me two extra minutes. <laughs> no, I no. Like I said, you can me. you could. I I don't need to be anywhere. It's all about whether you you know you have the time or not. I'm I'm perfectly fine because uh, there was you know many. One thing I did. Well, a couple things. If you have the time. Uh, yeah. No, I'm I'm here. Okay. Good. Good. Let's let's get into then. Um, you know, the, the um, workbook that you talked about, uh, emotional budgeting, um, then we can talk about, you know, your bipolar war and autism revolution. Uh, so if you want to just start off with the emotional budget workbook. Uh, like okay. What is it? What is it? How does I, I, it work? Go ahead. I really appreciate that because in part, as we've gone through and discussed the, the Neanderthal and the social interaction with homo sapiens, I, it, it, to me, it's the foundation of how, again, we're looking at behavior. And I just mentioned briefly that it, all of our actions, and we see in the Roman times, it definitely was, and before that, obviously, but I, I bring up the Romans because it's so well recorded and, and we have such an intimate knowledge of their uh, social life. It, you could see that, you know, crucifixion, this was all about fear, uh, forcing people, discipline, getting the behavior you want through the interaction of, of forcing people to change their minds by changing their behaviors. And of course you change someone's behavior in their mind or in our minds by fear or incarceration or by all these tactics. Even when we raise our children, we, uh, we use a lot of different tactics, rewards, fear, um, and so on. 
And to me, this is exactly, if you look at all the research, here's the, the underlying research. We see all the research of our mental health and uh, in regards to trying to influence function. And it is about function. Uh, it's about the function of an individual and at what point uh, is he unable to function? How, how much does society have to support that individual or how much can he help support society? So no matter what, if the individual is supporting society, no one thinks anything about it. And yet here's all this evolution going on. Uh, so people are functioning with different types of genome and different types of uh, genetic uh, genotypes, such as what, I, again, the, it's dangerous, but I have, for a lack of a better understanding of how a cognitive, the cognitive brain develops, we're calling this bipolar an autistic divergence or uh, in the way that there's two sort of different types of brain development. Now, that doesn't mean it's so different that one is different species or in any of that regards. And in fact, Neanderthals, in technical terms are the same species as homo sapiens in that they they were able to have uh, socially intermix and have children and and so forth and that usually is the defining interestingly enough that's usually in science the defining point of whether they're actually two different species is whether they can actually have offspring together and so obviously they were but we don't know to what extent or what may have been barriers so interestingly enough uh, you know, they're different, but at the same time, they were us. And in that way, regards, we can look at bipolar and autism. We don't see necessarily the distinction between the two. But when you're up close and you're in my position where you see the symptoms and you see the actual function. So the easiest thing to see, of course, are those who don't function, the disabilities. And those disabilities are actually the extreme end of the spectrum on both sides of that function. So it's easier to view how the differences are. What are the differences? And with a lot of CAT scans and PET scans, there are suggestions, and I'll say just suggestions, that there are brain function, uh, brain development differences, not necessarily uh, nice and neat and tidy differences that we can, uh, you know, identify in very structural terms, but nuances of differences that are consistent with each uh, uh, bio, bipolar or autistic um, brain development. And as they get more, there is a tendency to see more and more types of differences in all kinds of ways, neuron development, uh, structural just so many different ways. And they're in so many variable ways. So this is, this is where you start to see just a slight structural difference in how the brain operates on the extreme. And obviously the more towards the middle of the function and the brain development they get, the more similar they are. So it becomes harder to see apart. But as you get to see the behaviors, the behaviors are the pathways to what's going on in the brain. And that's where we come back to the workbook because it is with the, the knowledge of this, it is with the assuredness that the brain, if you're alive, is performing exactly what it's supposed to be doing, keeping you alive. It's, it's pumping your heart, it's taking in uh, neurons it's, or uh, sensory, and it's doing what it's supposed to. So the brain is working. And if it's working, then the behaviors are secondary. In other words, the behaviors don't come before your brain operates. It's like the heart. You can run and walk as long as the heart is pumping. As soon as the heart isn't pumping, you're not going to be doing anything except maybe ICU. So <laughs> it's important to understand that behaviors are secondary. If you're not dealing with the brain, you're doing secondary work. So all mental health is secondary or tertiary. And this leads me to the facts. The facts are that if you're involved, and unfortunately, in all the research, with all the counseling, and all the verbal and 
treatments, it always comes out to be about the same between what we said with, with recidivism, between 17 and 27% effective. And unfortunately, that's exactly the same as if there's nothing being done. And not to say that there aren't individuals or someone has, but these are all nuances of variability that are exactly the same as if there's no treatment at all. And that's where it's misleading to understand because we hear people, oh, I was treated. But if we look at all the addicts and addictions and alcoholism, and we see how many people tried and how many people failed, and you do research on that, it still comes back to that number because we're, tr we're trying to treat the brain through behavior. And no matter what you do, and I don't mean personal or an individual does or an institution, you're always coming back to that number because it's a physical issue. The brain, uh, the behavior is secondary or tertiary. The brain will always be central to how your body functions. So behavior follows function. With the workbook, this is exactly what it does. It identifies as a fact what's going on in your emotional life and who it's with. And it, you, it's the same as a, and the reason it's called emotional budgeting, it's the same way we do financial workbooks. So I always say, if you have $5,000 coming in and you have $6,000 going out, you are $1,000 in debt. If you only have those two numbers, you will never understand how to fix that, except to huddle up somewhere and do nothing. The problem solving solution only comes when we identify by line item what is going out, not necessarily what's coming in, but that helps too, but more about what's going out. If that's in control, what depends on what's in our control, what we have influence over. And most of it is about going out, outgoing. So to solve a problem of that little financial conundrum, we do line items and then we make decisions, problem solved about what we're gonna do. Same thing with emotional budgeting. You take the emotions, you're not going to solve them if you have pain. And that's how, where we go back to working with the brain. We're not working with behaviors, we're working with the brain, pain. We don't know, we don't know how to recognize it. We don't know what to say about it. We don't have words for it, except for headache medicine. We don't identify it. So we need to identify it. And the way we do that is identifying by line item our emotional issues as facts. This happened, that happened. And then, and then after that's done, then we can problem solve. If, if you have hurt feelings or it's a busy day and something else happened, it is a tendency, and this is where my school psychology or clinic work comes in, there's a lot of lashing out going on around our globe, a lot of lashing out. And the way most people identify the lashing out as rationalizing their lashing out is through their senses. When we come back to senses again, what the brain sees, hears, smells, tastes. We use that to identify because those are external sensory sources that identify how we are, what, what are the facts? These are our facts, what we see, what we hear. And you can see that in a child. A lot of times it's very easy. Kids will lash out at their teacher, their parents uh, for reasons, but it actually might be a toothache or it could be uh, something happened at school, but they can't verbalize it or they have trouble verbalizing it or they don't really know. And all they see is that mom told them to do their homework and off they stomp and go. These are things that everyone does and the rationale comes when we try to explain to ourselves why it happened. But the brain keeps marching on. The brain is not there. We do not have uh, gauges like a car. We don't say, oh, our, um, 
our uh, uh, neurochemicals are low today, or you know, we need uh, something our, over here is what's happening, and that influenced our thoughts. But that's exactly what goes on, including the escalation. So for men, there are groups of men who uh, are influenced by sensory and the, uh, including their physiology. And by that, I mean that they're more likely, their sensory indicate that they're going to escalate in that moment over a situation faster than somebody else. That doesn't mean it's a right or wrong escalation because this goes back again to our roots, our tribe, our Neanderthal roots, our Homo sapien roots when we're hunting. And these genotypes or these gene expressions don't necessarily just go away. They're still there, but the environment has changed. We're back to the environment again. And this goes back to our rationalizing why we do things. But if we take it back one more step, instead of, if we go back to function, we'll look at the tangle of emotional, uh, I call it the Gordian knot, the emotional Gordian knot. You pull the string and it's one big ball. If you can't find that string to untangle it, you can't untie the emotional knot. And by doing this, the workbook, the brain actually absorbs through the mechanics of visual and actually writing as a mechanical memory. The brain categorizes this just as our computer does. It files, it makes files where there weren't any before. What, they, what there are are trains, uh, thoughts connected to each other in random. So we call that PTSD uh, in a lot of situations where one incident pulls and tugs on 10 years, uh, even a marriage. If, if an incident happens, you have 10 years of marriage that unravels each moment there might be an issue because they're all connected. They haven't been put and categorized by the brain into different files. And by doing this, the brain will identify and put them in files so that they're not all connected with each item. And so when one incident happens, one can go through, identify the issue, and problem solve the emotional moment without resorting to lashing out necessarily. Now, that doesn't mean it squelches our physiology, our genetic makeup. It doesn't. What it gives is an awareness. So when one feels escalating because of a situation, stress, or one sees a $5,000 bill and one knows that they only made 4,000, then at that moment, they're able to understand that they can go through and identify the actual issue. And at that point, problem solve, because lashing out is usually not a good method. It's usually a negative issue and results in uh, more pain and more trauma for everybody. So this is why uh, the whole concept of working with the brain and behavior will follow rather than trying to keep trying to change the brain through changing and influencing behavior. Uh, we see that failure thousands and thousands of years through and it just isn't happening without that influence of the actual, the brain's need. The brain's need to organize, uh, file information, and provide a background to helping problem solve, in the, in, especially in the emotional. Since we've done it so well financially, I think it's time to move on to the emotional part of our, uh, of our homo sapien needs. I love that analogy, and, and and I, anytime I talk with you know family, friends, loved ones, or you know it's like you, you just need to put that in a file in your head. You know you just need to file, you know organize your brain almost like a filing cabinet. You know you need to put put different emotions or thoughts into different files, and I mean they're always going to be there. You know, sometimes you may need that feeling or you may need that file to refer back to, you know, whenever certain situations come up. So I love that analogy of, you know, filing things away in your brain. I like that. Yeah, and, and it, it's 
it, this is where there's a little bit of trust with your your own, you know, with an individual with their own brain. They, I actually have 100% trust in, in people's brain, uh, not necessarily what they think about themselves or what they say, but I have absolute confidence. I have 100% confidence in a person's brain because when I know exactly, when I know pretty much theoretically and, and practicality and with my experience, how the brain is operating, we see what the symptoms are through the behaviors. But so then instead of trying to address the behaviors, we address the brain. Well, so, oh, okay, as a child, it's, it's more fun and it's easier with children, obviously, because it's much simpler connections. When we get older, the rationales become a lot more complicated. The environment becomes complicated. The, the multiple variables of environmental and the, and the ability for to change their environment is much more difficult to influence. But at the same time, it's still a providing a emotional problem solving method. And with children, it's fun because you can see so much more clearly what's going on, the, the, the issues of what they say, and then obviously the issue that they're not recognizing because they don't have the background, they don't have the education to understand that perhaps it's really their pain that they're feeling that they don't see it or feel it the way you might with a broken leg or a hurt or a cut. And the brain is doing things that they don't understand, but they look around and try to explain. So if an adult is particularly important, when an adult does not have an answer for their pain or does not identify a child's pain or dismisses a child's pain, they will come up with their own rationale. And that own rationale means I see mom, I see this, I see this person, they caused my pain or this situation caused my pain. That's their explanation because they didn't get one to who helped them identify how they feel. And so they'll come up with one on their own. If mom or dad didn't help them or doctor didn't explain to them something, they're more than, you know, they're more than, uh, they have the ability to make up for themselves what they think is. And it's most likely not, you know, there may be some influence, but it's certainly not likely to be a problem solving solution. So this is where it's really important in my mind, not to dismiss behaviors necessarily just because uh, they're inappropriate, but to understand, hey, you know, is there something going on with the brain that it's overwhelmed? The word, the last word I will leave you with is the word overwhelmed. The, the brain becomes overwhelmed and processing is finite, just as in a computer. And when children, most likely, it's easier to see when in a situation they're overwhelmed, lashing out, or uh, maladaptive behaviors. And at that point, they're unable to problem solve. And so it's important when we're helping them, the brain, brain development, cognitive function, helping the brain increase their capacity by helping the brain develop the files to put away these line items that we do just exactly how it works. And it's been so successful in financial circles. We need to do this now in emotional, for emotional needs. Uh, it's been neglected. It's been misunderstood in my mind, uh, in my experience. And now we need to deal with it in a statistically scientific way. It's not hoka hocus pocus. It's not a, a secret formula. It's science. It's repeatable because we're working with a brain. We're working with the organ. We're not working with a rationale or a thought of why something might be going on. We're working with the science in the same way that a heart surgeon works with the heart. We're working with science in the same way that we fix a leg. We're working with a brain that has science and organic properties that are shared with every single individual on this planet. And then we go back to Neanderthal because that's where the influence, you know, the differences in the genetic uh, expression and the environment and how that indicates that, you know, it's not necessarily that we have disability. What we have is an inability to find, uh, be flexible enough to find supportive ways for everyone to be functional in their society doesn't mean it's the way we think they should be. They're not going to go out and cut a tree down, but in ways that we have already. 
And the autism revolution is really counting on how so much of the computer age has helped, you know, provided a whole different class and group of people with those abilities versus say another group of abilities that don't have, you know, aren't, aren't, you know, don't, aren't able to think through or don't want to think through in the terms that these people think through. But again, what are the positive aspects of those who have more on the spectrum? And again, people can have both. They can have autistic and they can have bipolar type brain development. It's a spectrum of, and the issues that come out are those on the extreme ends. So being overwhelmed, that's what, you know, and dealing with it so we can problem solve our way into the future in the 21st century, 22nd century. <laughs> Fantastic. It's just, I, I love it. I love all the information. I love everything that you've talked about. And, and I, again, Dr. Chimbatara, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate all the time that you've given to this. Now let's, uh, so just to run through what you have available, you have the uh, emotional budgeting workbook. Uh, let's see the bipolar war autism revolution and then was there something with the cognitive narrative development workbook yes i haven't actually public uh published that yet we're in the process of getting it actually published we have our own publication we actually have and we we call it we have a another name for our publication it's called fufu media empire and we do children's books uh the emperor and the the legend of fufu and legend of fufu and the golden mugs and we have a, it's going to be an ongoing series and this is our publication that we do the uh, print under. Uh, currently, the Emotional Budgeting Workbook is under in Amazon and all the books, uh, online bookstores. But uh, this is uh, this is going to be our the area in which we publish those upcoming books. They're not quite ready to be there, but they'll be under our own publication, uh, public publicizing uh, name, Fufu Media Empire. Uh, in part because we want to, we have such a wide variety of, of publications coming out. So this made sense for us to do it uh, in regards uh, to publications that way. Now, with that, with, does that include the bipolar war and the autism revolution? Are those still? In those the are going to be, yes, those okay. will be published under the same, but they also, they'll be available online uh, as well. They're not out yet. Uh, there's um, some things that need to be edited and, and cleaned up, but those are the um, books that are coming up, and including the children's books that we use to uh, do mindfulness. There's um, we in the children's books we tried to we set the foundation for uh, fufu, which is uh, we have a lot of we have like a bunch of fufus here with us, and uh, we did a journey back in understanding the origins. And as an ambassador, Fufu will is looking to help children and uh, around the globe in its adventures and with some history background uh, based on some true events. Uh, while Fufu does um, journey around the globe, so we we have a wide variety of, of publications that we do. My wife is uh, Cynthia Sambataro is also she's a health psychologist and uh, does a lot of the writing for the children's books. Awesome. Now, well, now is there a uh, website or anything for Fufu yet? Or yes, how would, uh... Uh, that, that can be go to um, Fufu Media Empire. That's a website. Uh, Emotional Budgeting Workbook is a website as well. It's a work in progress because we've changed so much, but we're it still has to be kind of updated, but it does give a lot of information on that. And uh, you can get a lot of information. We are in the process of looking at, um, there, it, we're sort of at a, a, I would say a divergence of our own. We're, we can go one way with our emotional budgeting and organization. And I'm looking at perhaps uh, doing some workshops on vid on YouTube. So we haven't quite done it yet, but we're exploring, you know, which direction to go with uh, the workshop on YouTube or uh, maybe both. So that's coming to a, a, 
a decision here on our own, <laughs> I would say, our own problem solving decision to make. Awesome. Well, so uh, just a few more things here. Was there anything that uh, you, you, we didn't talk about uh, that, that you may have wanted to, that you wanted to address? There is one more thing. Uh, there is sure. more information if people are interested. There's 14 hours of detail that they might see, for example, they will see in the books, uh, Bipolar War and Autism Revolution. There is a lot of information. There's 14 hours in which I discuss different uh, different situations or different environments, uh, different categories like chapters in regards to uh, the whole idea of emotional budgeting. And a lot of it, some of it we discussed today is discussed in those 14 hours. And they can be seen on some of the podcasts. They just have to look up Talk Revolution and then my name, Paul Sambataro. So that can be uh, looked up on the online, uh, but there's several podcasts that um, still circulate with that podcast. And there's 14 hours, it's a lot, but it details. So everything we've said today uh, has been mentioned in some way or another, but in more detail in those 14 hours of podcast. Awesome, and you said you can get those by Talk Revolution? Right, correct? by oh. looking up Talk Revolution and then my name, Paul Sumataro. Awesome, yeah, I was actually going to ask you about, I know you had started a podcast, uh, Emotional Budgeting Podcast, and I just didn't know if you still uh, dabbled in that or not, so. What I found was it's it's really time consuming. I, oh, sure. <laughs> I, know what, I know exactly what you're going through. And, and when I, I looked at that, I was I was exhausted. Well, it, so much is but the important thing here is that it wasn't because it was so much because I find it fun. I love to, you know, to obviously discuss this. I have a, a it's very um, prompting prompts me to think a little more and so on and so forth. But it took away from my writing time. I, there's only so much time in a day. So it was sure, important sure. for me to have some time to finish those books that we've discussed and get them out there. And then I will probably pick up the podcast again. Awesome. That's fantastic. Well, so, uh, you know, again, Dr. Poe, anytime in the future, whenever you're ready to, to, you know, do some promotions for those, please uh, get a hold of me. I'll be, I would love to have you on again. I, I absolutely appreciated everything we talked about today. And it was uh, very informative for me, so I know it will be as well for my cave dweller community. And uh, I definitely appreciate your time and thank you for uh, you know, being willing to go a little longer than the half hour. Oh, so, no, yeah, it's my pleasure. And please, uh, can you do me a favor, Anthony? Can you send me a, 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 an email, which I might direct a conversation with you or a request or anything, whether it's business or not, to hbhi at tutanota.com so I can have it on file so I can carry that conversation with you if needed, or you can contact me anytime. Uh, it's no problem uh, to okay. contact me for any reason. Yeah, it's a business email and it's to Houston Behavioral Health Institute. And, and again, at, that was H-B-H-I at Tutin, Tutin, how's that? Going? It's Tutinota, that's sort of Italian, but it's actually a, a European uh, email service uh, for, and it had, um, it's, it's, it has, it carries encryption if necessary. So it's a great, it's a great little, um, email service, but it's, uh, Tutanota. It will come up on the online because it's pretty prominent email service. So even if it's misspelled, it should come up, uh, pretty clearly. Awesome. And then, uh, usually what I'll do is I'll send you an email, uh, right before the show and let you know, uh, that it's going to be out. But and that will be great because I can put that up on, you know, and, and help promote it. So no worries oh, sure. there, I'll be more than happy to, of course it's, uh, we have so many different um, social formats, but again, it's kind of split up in between our children books and our other publications, but we're, we're gonna consolidate all of that. Actually, that's what we're doing. We're consolidating our publications under one house and uh, all of these links will be linked together. So it, it reinforces. So we, we would be great to, be able to promote that on our links. Yeah, I appreciate that. And like I said, I, I'm, I would love to, to help you promote anything you have coming out in the future. So, uh, you know, again, Dr. Paul, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Oh, I'm busy, busy, but I appreciate it. And I really enjoyed it. Thank you because it helps my mind 
just go a little faster and better organized. <laughs> so thank you so much, Anthony. You have a great weekend too. You as well, Dr. Paul. Thank you, sir. All right. Bye-bye. Bye well, there you have it, cave dwellers. Yet another riveting conversation with a brilliant mind. I know, as with the other conversations we've had on the Neanderthal mind, you gained some valuable knowledge and insight to what our Neanderthal ancestors' minds were thinking while they were unknowingly setting up the future of our existence. I always get more fascinated with our ancestors as I do these episodes, and it keeps me moving on to the next expert in the field of Neanderthals. So, please, join me next episode as we sit down with Seth Chagi from World of Paleoanthropology Facebook group. Seth and I get into a discussion of the importance of more education in the grade school level systems about our Neanderthal past and how we came to be who we are today. So until next time, cave dwellers. Thanks for listening to the Neanderthal Mind podcast. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. If you love what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review the Neanderthal Mind podcast wherever you download your podcasts. If you know anyone that you think would enjoy this podcast, please recommend the Neanderthal Mind to them. Until next episode, my fellow cave dwellers, don't forget, leave your cave drawings and comments on our wall at theneanderthalmind.com.